Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. I am what you might call a bit of a roller coaster fanatic. In fact, my wife and I are what you might call kind of roller coaster junkies. The bigger, the badder, the faster the roller coaster, the better. And when we were in North Carolina, there was no bigger or badder roller coaster than the Fury at Carowinds Amusement Park in Charlotte. The Fury stands at an impressive peak height of 325 feet, and it features an 81-degree drop, almost straight down. And its record-setting steel track of 12.5 miles long, it rockets around that track at 95 miles per hour. There is truly... No bigger coaster than the Fury in Carolina. And when we were in Carolina, I had the opportunity to get to know every inch of that 12.5 miles very closely. Because Don and I had taken our youth ministry, the students, down to Carowinds one day. And the day that we arrived, it just so happened that attendance was really low at the park. So we had unlimited access to every ride in the park, which meant a group of thrill-seeking teenagers and two adult roller coaster junkies could get on the fury over and over and over again. And literally, within the course of 45 minutes, we rode that stupid thing six times in a row. We would get off and get back on, get off and get back on. And honestly, we probably would have kept on going were it not for the young woman, the student, she was a sophomore sitting next to me, who continually started passing out on our sixth time around. I would watch her, and she would be sitting, she was sitting next to me, and she would literally pass out, ragdoll next to me, wake up and scream, ah, and then pass out again and start ragdolling next to me. And I watched her go through this horrific, like, awakening and passing out, horrific waking up and passing out three or four times in this last trip around. And I decided it was probably time for me to be a responsible adult (laughs) and make the kids take a break before my roller coaster addiction caused them brain damage. So I said, sit down. We're going to take a break from riding coasters. And thankfully, she recovered quickly. But that day was memorable because we had the opportunity to jump on roller coaster and ride after ride. We had unlimited access to any ride in the park that we wanted. But I remember a time when I was much younger that going to an amusement park was a much more restrictive experience because all the fun rides had height restrictions for passengers. Now, you remember what those signs look like, right? There were generally a picture of the park mascot. It was generally like some creepy clown or a bear in a tutu 
that had like his arm raised to a specific height. And then above that mascot, it read in big, bold words, what? You have to be at least this tall to ride this ride. And inevitably, the gatekeeper for all those rides was generally some teenager, like smacking their gum with a ruler in hand, who seemed to like get some sick joy from crushing the dreams of like little kids, right? Like, you're not going to get on this ride today, uh-uh, uh-uh, another half an inch. And that was an especially frustrating time for me, because I remember, especially when I was within like an inch or two inches of being able to meet that restriction, I would go through extraordinary lengths to try and measure up. I would go into my closet and I would find my Airwalk sneakers that had the thickest sole on them and try to put on like a couple extra layers of socks just to maybe measure up a little bit higher. Or when I got in line and got to that inevitable sign, I would try and like stand on my tippy toes, right? And hope the park attendant didn't notice that I magically grew like half an inch. Or I would take some hair gel, an extra glop of hair gel, and put it in my hair and try to poof up my hair just a little bit higher to cover that last half an inch. And really, I guess now I think that's probably why I don't have hair, all that extra hair gel. But the truth is, regardless of what I did, no matter what extent I went to, I never measured up. And that wouldn't be the first or the last time that I would experience that feeling. There have been many times since where I felt like I didn't measure up. For example, my high school football coach one day told me, Nick, we're going to pencil you in as a starter on varsity. And then with the same breath told the other players, hey, we're going to pen you in as a starter in varsity. You know what the difference between a pencil and a pen is? You can erase the pencil. I didn't measure up. Or maybe it was that time when I was in sales, and for several years in a row, I came in dead last in my sales team. I didn't measure up. Or maybe it was that girl in high school that I had a crush on, and I waited all year long to work up the nerves to go ask her out. And when I did, she said, "Uh, I just want to be friends. (laughs) I didn't measure up. And so time and time again, I've come up short, I've missed the mark, I've fallen flat in life, but the truth is that there's probably no other area of my life where I've experienced that feeling of not measuring up more than when it comes to feeling worthy of God's love. Because the standard by which I oftentimes judge myself to receive God's love often feels like a height restriction on a ride that I'm always too short to get on. And just like I did as a little kid, I try to go to extraordinary lengths to prove to God and to my church family that I measure up. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. And yet, regardless of whatever I attempt to do, it always seems that my attempts are overshadowed by the shame and guilt I feel by past mistakes and failures. The truth is, guys, sometimes I feel like I don't measure up. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm worthy of God's love. Now, I've been on this faith journey long enough to know that I'm not the only one in that place. 
I think all of us could probably either right now or at some time in our lives point to a time where we believe that we didn't measure up or that we were not worthy of receiving God's love. And we all have different reasons for why we arrive at that place of not measuring up. Some of us in this room this morning might say that we feel like we don't measure up because we're really, really good at playing the comparison game. And trust me, in Christian church, in Christian culture, it is really easy to play the comparison game. Because all too often, we will look at somebody else's life and start to compare our spirituality against theirs. And we use their spirituality as a standard to determine how and where we rank in God's kingdom. We see somebody praying, and we say, man, if I could just pray like that person, I would measure up. We see somebody out serving and we say, man, if if I just had that heart and I could just serve like that person, I would finally measure up. Or we hear somebody quote scripture and it's the same thing. Man, if I could just memorize God's word and quote it so easily, I would finally measure up. And on and on it goes. And over and over again, we make these comparisons with other spirituality and then we use that as the standard to determine whether or not we're worthy to receive God's love. Comparisons can cause us to feel like we don't measure up. I would bet that for others in this room, that you would say that I feel like I don't measure up because I've allowed a person or an institution to impose their standards on my life. And the American church is notorious for doing this. People come into a saving faith of Jesus Christ, and instead of inviting them to be a disciple of Christ, we hand them a list of rules to be a good Christian. And those rules generally go something like this. You need to pray more. You need to go to church more. You need to give more. You need to be in a small group. We go through the entire thing. And those spiritual disciplines are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. They should be a natural byproduct of our relationship with Christ. But when they are used to impose a standard on our faith, they go from something that is a blessing to a curse that causes shame, fear, and guilt. And those standards that people impose upon our lives can cause us to feel like we're unworthy or that we don't measure up. And the other one that I would think probably all of us can get behind. All of us would agree with, at some point, we would say we don't measure up because of our past mistakes or failures. Church, I've been there too. I've got those in my life as well. We all have things that we've done that we look back on and we regret, or we all have those things that we look back on and wish we could change. But the problem is is that we take those failures and we use them as a standard again to disqualify us from God's love depending on the severity of the sin or the reoccurring nature in which it occurs in our lives. So maybe for some in this room you say, I've betrayed somebody. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's an abortion. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's stealing. Maybe it's gossiping. The list of sins that we use to prevent us from receiving God's long are as long and as varied as the number of people in this room. But the truth is, church, and the crazy part about it 
is that if somebody were to come to us with that exact sin that we were ashamed of and say, hey, does God love me? Can God forgive me of this? We would tell that person, yes, he does. And you would turn around in the same breath and condemn ourselves with that sin and say, I am unworthy to receive that same love and forgiveness I just told somebody else. Our sins and mistakes hold us back from measuring up, from feeling worthy of God's love. So what exactly is God's standard then? What makes a person worthy of receiving God's love? I've got bad news. It's much worse than what you think. You came here to get encouraged, so I'm going to encourage you. It's much worse than what you think, because whatever standard you hold to to discern whether or not you measure up to God, God's standard is actually way, way higher. And the truth is, you don't measure up. The truth is, you will never measure up. And as we're going to see from our passage today, that is actually really, really good news. And so we're going to look at the book of Matthew chapter 5 and explore together exactly what Jesus had to say on this topic. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bibles on your phone, if you're watching us online this morning, you can turn there as well. But we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is regarded by many theologians, people who study the Word, as Jesus' most famous sermon. But not only Jesus' most famous sermon, they regard it oftentimes as the most famous sermon ever given. And within the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find things like the Golden Rule, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. You'll find the list of uh, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then, of course, the Beatitudes are also in the Sermon on the Mount, the list of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, the meek. It goes through all those in the Beatitudes. And the Sermon on the Mount actually derives its name from Jesus preaching on a mountainside. And we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. But as with all Scripture... It's important to understand the cultural context to be able to understand the passage. And the Sermon on the Mount is no different than any other passage in the Bible. You see, Jesus is actually speaking to first century Jews. And those Jewish people that were in attendance that day, listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, believed that they understood God's standard for righteousness. They, they believed they understood what it took to measure up. You see, thousands of years earlier, God had chosen a group of people, the Israelites, to be his chosen people. And as his chosen people, God had given them a set of laws to help them be set apart from all the other people groups in the world, that they would live and act differently. And these laws started out as what we know as the Ten Commandments. And over time, they blossomed into 613 different laws. 613 laws. Kids, you think you got a lot of rules at your house? <laughs> think about if you had 613 rules you had to follow at your house. And these laws dictated every area of Jewish life. In fact, it dictated what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. It dictated what they could wear and what they couldn't wear. And 
you know, as I was thinking about this, if I remember correctly, actually back to my Bible college years, the, the 431st law actually says, thou shalt not wear Green Bay Packers gear as an abomination to the Lord. Do with that as you will, sinners. But these laws dictated every area of Jewish life, not only what they wore and how they lived, but it also dictated who could worship God. And for example, some of the rules in worship stated that only certain people could go into the temple and that even a more elite and select group could experience the presence of God. So these rules and laws were quite literally the standard by which religious leaders would use to measure and determine who measured up and who didn't. Now fast forward several thousand years to something revolutionary happening. God shows up as a real-life flesh, man, human being, as Jesus. And Jesus begins going around and talking about a way of living for righteousness that was not tied to obeying a set of rules, but a way of living righteous that was an outflow of the condition of one's heart. And this was game-changing for the Jews, for those Jews in the first century. They had never heard anything like this before, and all of a sudden, the kingdom of God was seemingly being turned upside down. But not everybody was on board with what Jesus had to say. Not everybody liked this revolutionary message in life that Jesus was talking about. In fact, some of the religious leaders began to accuse Jesus of being a libertarian or somebody who was abolishing the standards of the Old Testament. These standards and these laws that they had clung to for centuries, they were accusing Christ of walking away from that. And very early on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on the offensive and begins to address these accusations. And that's where we're going to start our, our uh, scripture reading today, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And it says this, Do not think that I have come, Jesus is talking, to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Stop. Jesus' words right there indicate that there must have been some kind of rumbling happening in and amongst the Jewish people about him coming to abolish the law. If not, why else say it? Why would you say, I have not come to do that, unless people were saying that's what you had done? And so Jesus fights that accusation by saying, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it in the sense of fulfill and establish it. Jesus had not come to displace or diminish the law, but to uphold the revelation of the law. And he continues in verse 18 and 19 when he says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will uh, pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you catch what Jesus did there? He's doubling down on his original statement. He's upholding the divine authority of God's word and saying that the law is God's word given to the Israelites. And then he says that not one iota. 
And that iota actually refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then he says, not one dot, and it refers to the small dash that they would add to that letter, will pass away until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, the law isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And then he points out the fact that, to, that there are consequences to anyone who actually changes the law, who takes away even the smallest portion of the law, or teaches that you should take away the smallest portion of the law, that that will be met with disapproval in the kingdom of God. Jesus' new standard for the kingdom doesn't overthrow the Old Testament law, it maintains it. And then in verse 20, he drops a bomb on him. He drops a bomb. He says something amazing. He says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but I believe that when Jesus made that statement, there was probably an audible gasp of disbelief from the audience that was listening to him. Because you have to understand, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they maintained a strict obedience to each of the 613 laws. In fact, history tells us that the Pharisees were so scrupulous with their following of the law that they would actually tithe a percentage of the tiny herbs that they got from their herb gardens. Think about that. Like, hey, God, here's 10% of my parsley. Like, it, they were that scrupulous. They followed the law to that close, the letter of the law, so closely. And Jesus tells his audience that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't stop there. In fact, a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, he clarifies exactly what that means. And he says that God's standard for righteousness for humanity is nothing less than perfection. Exciting, huh? Exciting. All you have to do to measure up to a perfect God is live a perfect life. Simple, right? So why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus double down on a standard that no human being has the ability to attain? Well, the first century Jews listening to the Sermon on the Mount misunderstood Jesus, uh, the law's standard for the kingdom. They believed that God had given the law as a standard or a means for salvation. Like many of us here this morning, they believed that if they could just work hard enough and try hard enough, they would be able to measure up, that they would be able to be worthy of God's love. But Jesus understood something different. Jesus, being God, understood that the law had been given for a different purpose. Jesus understood that the law was never meant to be a means of salvation, but instead, as the book of Romans declares, it was given to show all of humanity, not just the Jews that were in attendance, but all of humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time, just how far short we fall of achieving God's standards. We all fall short. There is no one perfect. You guys, my wife, who is quite literally the most amazing human being that I have ever met, 
even on her best day, her best of best of days, she still falls woefully short of God's standard, primarily because she puts pineapple on her pizza. But (laughs) she still falls woefully short. Pastor Jason, on his best, best day, still falls woefully short. Me, on my best, best day, I definitely fall woefully short of God's standard. There is no one who is perfect. And because of that, we are in need of someone to rescue and save us. And church, that's the beauty of the gospel message. That is the beauty of the story of Jesus Christ. Where we couldn't, Jesus does. Because Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect and sinless life. And all the penalties that we have deserved for breaking God's law were poured out on Christ when he died on the cross at Calvary. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the law is no longer the standard for righteousness. Christ is. The purpose of the law is to point us to look at Christ, not law-keeping, not trying harder, not doing more, not going to church more. It's the purpose of the law is to point us to Jesus and say, He is my standard of righteousness. Jesus wants us to depend and trust him to fulfill God's perfect standard of righteousness instead of relying on our own merits and abilities. We don't have to measure up, church, because Jesus does. We don't have to measure up because Jesus does. And I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes this thought in the book of Romans. Listen carefully to what he says here. But God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. We were made right with God, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Church, did you catch that last part? If you didn't, you need to pay attention and listen to me right now. We are made right with God through Jesus, no matter who we are. That means it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how big a sin you think you've committed or how often you've committed that sin over and over again. When we put our faith in Jesus, church, we are made right with God. That means you don't have to try harder. That means you don't have to compare your life to other people. That means you don't have to allow other people to impose their standards on your life. That means you don't have to live under the burden of shame and guilt over your past mistakes. You are worthy of God's love because Jesus makes you worthy. Jesus wants us to depend on him to fulfill God's standard of righteousness instead of relying on our own merits and abilities. You don't have to measure up because Jesus does. So how do we apply this? It's kind of a nebulous concept. We were laughing about it at our small group on Tuesday that I I could now give you 10 things to do about how to apply this, and I'm just putting religion on you. So how do we apply this concept? How do we walk out of here and begin to depend more on this idea that we are made right with God through Christ? Well, as I was thinking about it and praying about it this week, I was reminded of an annoying kind of trend that I've begun to notice on my social media feed. 
as I've begun scrolling through my social media feed, I've started to notice that there are stories that are accompanied with a fact checker link, right? And generally, those stories are tied to some kind of political story. Click here to learn the truth about whether or not the president wants to eat your dog. Something along those, along those lines. But regardless, it got me thinking that when it comes to depending on Christ to fulfill God's standard of righteousness, we need to start fact-checking the thoughts that run through our head about who we are in Jesus. Because the truth is, church, every day we have hundreds of thoughts that roll through our head about who we are. And more often than not, for a majority of people, at least for me, those thoughts are often negative. I often think I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. Or I often think that I don't compare well to this person. I wish there was something that I could change about my life. And in the midst of those thoughts, we need to be able to stop and reorient ourselves to what the Bible says about us in Jesus. And this is very simple to do, church. We can start fact-checking our thoughts as we walk out of here today. When you have a thought or a feeling that makes you feel unworthy or like you don't measure up, stop and ask yourself, is this true? Is this true? Is this thought or feeling that I have, does it accurately represent what Jesus thinks and feels about me? And if that thought is anything less than I am made right with God through Christ, or I am a child of God through Christ, then it is false. And we can scroll on by that thought just as easy as we scroll by those news stories in our social media feed. Is that true? But here's the truth this morning, church. That's only possible if you have a relationship with Christ. If you've decided to put your faith in Jesus, that's available to you. But if you haven't made that decision to follow Christ, Scripture actually says that we're enemies of God because we don't measure up, because we have broken his law. And the punishment for breaking God's law is death. Not only physical death that we all encounter, but spiritual death, separation from God after we pass from this life into the next. But Jesus says this, my salvation, the gift of salvation, is available to anyone who calls on my name. And in the book of Romans in the Bible, it puts it this way, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternal salvation, measuring up to God, isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent upon believing that Jesus suffered the consequences of your sin on the cross and that because of that, we are made right with God. And so this morning, as we get ready to wrap up, I would be remiss if I didn't give opportunity for people to make that decision. Maybe you've been sitting here this morning and you're recognizing for the first time that I'm not right with God. I haven't ever made that choice to follow Jesus Christ. And today I want to do that. In just a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and it's very simple. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to ask that if that is you this morning, as I pray this prayer, would you just repeat after me? And so I'm going to ask that everybody would bow their heads and just close their eyes. 
And if that's you this morning, with every head bowed and all the eyes closed, would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand and just say, that's the decision that I want to make today? Not because I want to embarrass you, but because I want to know how to pray for you. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I see you. Yep. Yes, I see you. I see you. Yes. Amen. Well, let's pray this prayer. Would you pray with me and just repeat after me? Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and that I have broken your law. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you. I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. And in your name I pray, amen. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.